Well, good evening. I want to begin by saying thank you to John and Lisa and our team up here for leading us in worship through song this evening. It's always a joy to sing praise to our great God. Also want to say thank you to Josiah Grauman for his excellent message this morning from Isaiah 66, 1 and 2. It's one of my favorite passages of Scripture, and it's such a wonderful reminder that the one to whom the Lord looks is the one who is humble and contrite and who trembles at his word. And certainly this evening, the series that we are doing here on Sunday nights in July is a series that relates to trembling at the word of God, the wonder of the word of God. Of God. Not long ago, I came across an excerpt from the memoirs of a pastor who ministered in the first half of the 20th century. His name was Harry Ironside. He was the pastor of Moody Church in Chicago from 1929 to 1948. But some years before that, he had served as an evangelist in the city of San Francisco. And it was on one occasion in San Francisco, he was sharing his testimony during an evangelistic event. They were out on the streets of San Francisco and a crowd had gathered. And Ironside was explaining how it was that the Lord Jesus had saved him, transferred him from the kingdom of darkness and brought him into the kingdom of life. And there was a man in the crowd that day, Ironside described him as a man who was distinguished and intellectual looking. And as Ironside completed his testimony, this man came up, approached Ironside, and handed him a card. Ironside looked down at the name on the card. It was this man's name, and he recognized the name. This was the name of a fairly well-known agnostic who was traveling the Pacific coast holding meetings in which he was seeking to convince people that the Bible was false, that Christianity was not true, and that agnosticism and atheism held the answer. When Ironside flipped the card over, there was a message scrawled on it. The man had written, I want to have a debate with you, agnosticism versus Christianity, next week, Sunday, 4 p.m. in the Hall of Science here in San Francisco. Well, Ironside read that and he immediately responded. He responded verbally and publicly to this man in front of all of these people who were watching. He read what was on the card and he said, essentially, I accept. I accept your invitation to debate agnosticism versus Christianity, but I have one condition. My condition is, in an effort to demonstrate the helpfulness and usefulness of agnosticism, that you would bring two people, one man and one woman, Two people whose lives are clearly heading or were clearly heading in the wrong direction. People characterized by immorality and greed, caught in every form of vice. People whom the rest of society would look on as down and outers, those in the gutter, who came to one of your meetings and upon hearing the benefits of agnosticism, were changed by the message that you proclaimed, and they have since turned their lives around, and they are now virtuous, valuable members of the community, and if you were to ask them what produced that change, they would say without hesitation, it was the good news of agnosticism. And then Ironside said, and for my part, I will bring 100 people, 100 people whose lives were heading in the wrong direction, 
who were characterized by immorality and greed and every form of vice, people who society considered down and outers in the gutter of life, people who, upon hearing the truth of the word of God, the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, were instantly transformed such that they have had a complete change of life They are now virtuous, valuable members of society, serving their fellow man, walking in righteousness. And if you were to ask them, every single one of them would say that the catalyst for that transformation, the reason for that change is nothing less than the truth of the word of God and the person of Jesus Christ. Well, according to Ironside, the man kind of smiled with a little bit of a sarcastic smirk. He waved his hands as if to say, forget it. He turned and he left. The debate never happened because the agnostic was defeated before the the debate ever began. And I love that story because it illustrates in my mind the transforming power of the word of God. When the spirit of God takes his word and applies that truth to the unbelieving heart, the result is total change from the inside out. I heard... One person say it this way, there are many books that inform. There are a few books that can help produce reform, but there's only one book that transforms. And so I love the series that we're doing on Sunday nights, The Wonder of the Word, because the Word of God is unlike any other book. It is not merely information, And it does not produce merely an external reformation, but rather it both initiates and completes total transformation, even as we heard just this evening in the waters of baptism. This evening we will be considering the topic of canonicity, and I have to confess at the outset that this is going to be more of a lecture and less of a sermon. Dr. Chow last week referred to such hybrids as Lermans. I believe he has trademarked that term, so I want to make sure and give him credit. But that will be our experience this evening, something in between a lecture and a sermon The canon of Scripture, how we know the Bible is complete. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to a well-known passage of Scripture, a familiar place, 2 Timothy chapter 3. We'll begin there, 2 Timothy chapter 3. I love this passage of scripture when we talk about bibliology, that's the study of the Bible, because we see really so many different tenets of a biblical bibliology articulated in 2 Timothy 3 into 2 Timothy 4 by the Apostle Paul, of course, in the last epistle that he would ever write, probably just months, maybe just weeks before his execution at the hands of Nero. As he says in chapter 4, verses 6 to 8, he was ready to be poured out as a drink offering, one who had fought the good fight and finished the race. You'll notice in 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul begins by warning against false teachers. Really, he has been warning Timothy throughout the entire epistle. Chapter one, guard that which has been entrusted to you. Chapter two, be an approved workman who is not ashamed. Chapter three, watch out for false teachers. Starting in verse 14, Paul gives 
Timothy instruction that really is the remedy, the antidote to the poison of these false teachers. And you'll notice in verses 14 and 15 that Paul encourages Timothy to continue in the things that he had received and to cling to the sacred writings, writings that are able to lead to the knowledge of salvation in Jesus Christ. We see implied in those verses the doctrine of preservation, that the scripture is providentially preserved by faithful generations who pass it down to those who come after. We also see the power of the word of God in those verses, that it is in the scriptures that the gospel of salvation is found. Here in verses 16 and 17, we clearly see the doctrine of inspiration. All scripture is inspired, God breathed. And we see the doctrine of sufficiency. Because this comes from God, it is all that is needed for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, so that the man of God might be adequate The NAS has adequate. That's not really an adequate translation. There's some irony there. Really, the word should be complete so that the man of God might be complete, equipped for every good work. So in verses 14 and 15, the doctrine of preservation, verses 16 and 17, inspiration and sufficiency. If we go to chapter four, we have this charge from Paul to Timothy He charges him in the presence of God and of Christ, and then verse two, to preach the word in season and out of season, and to teach, to rebuke, to do so with all patience and instruction, verses three through five, so that his congregation will be grounded in sound doctrine. The implication is that the scripture is clear, it can be understood, it can be proclaimed, and it can be preached with clarity. So the preservation of Scripture, the inspiration of Scripture, the sufficiency of Scripture, the clarity of Scripture, it's all here in this text. Now, I mentioned those four because those are four of the five topics that we're addressing in this Sunday night series here in July. Abner last week was the inspiration of Scripture, how we know the Bible is the Word of God. Next week, the history of the preservation of Scripture, especially in the English language. Dr. Lawson will take us through that. The clarity of Scripture, how we know what the Bible means and the sufficiency of Scripture, how we know the Bible is all we need. That will round out our Sunday night series here in the month of July. But what about the canonicity of Scripture? Where is that in this text? All Scripture. All Scripture. Paul says that all Scripture is God-breathed. The question that that raises in my mind is, okay, Paul, what constitutes all Scripture? How do I know that the 66 books that are found between the two leather covers of this Bible, that those 66 books comprise the complete Word of God? That's the question that canonicity seeks to answer and the question that we will seek to answer this evening. So let's talk a little bit about canonicity, starting with some basic principles, and one basic rule in particular. Canonicity itself, the word, comes from a Greek word, kanon, which means rule or measure, and it came to refer to the way to measure or limit something. It could refer even to a fixed boundary. And so when we talk about the canon of Scripture, we can use that word in two different ways. We can either talk about the boundary of those books that comprise the scriptures, or we can talk about how scripture itself is the rule or measure against which we evaluate everything else. Tonight we'll be talking specifically about the canon of scripture in terms of those books that comprise the Old and New Testaments. The Old Testament 39 books 
from Genesis to Malachi, the New Testament, 27 books from Matthew to Revelation. By the way, I will just say this at the outset. When we post the audio for this, I'll make sure that the PowerPoint slides are posted as well. That way, if you want access to the slides, you can have them and you don't have to try and feverishly write everything down. Okay. When it comes to canonicity, the reality is that this topic could take up numerous Sunday night messages. At the seminary, we invest semesters dealing with topics related to canonicity. And we certainly could investigate each book and evidence, both external and internal, for why we believe what we believe about these books. Tonight, however, I want to simplify the whole thing for you with one basic rule when it comes to the doctrine of canonicity. In fact, if someone were to ask you, how do you know that these 66 books, that these 66 books are the complete canon of Scripture? If someone were to ask you that question, would you be able to give them an answer? I have an answer that I would propose for you to give because I'm convinced it is the right answer, and it's also an answer that does not take long to articulate. In fact, you can articulate it in about 10 seconds, which means that our evening service is going to be very short tonight. No, I've I've found other ways to expand on this topic, but this basic rule of canonicity is the heart of why we submit to the 39 books of the Old Testament and the 27 books of the New. And it is this. We submit to the 39 books of the Old Testament because our Lord Jesus affirmed the Old Testament, and we submit to the 27 books of the New Testament because our Lord Jesus authorized his apostles to write the New Testament. Jesus determines the canon. As those who submit to the lordship of Christ, we submit to that which he affirms and that which he authorizes. This book is the word of Christ. There is no authority higher than his divine authority no court of appeal to which we could appeal above him. And so as his followers, we affirm the Old Testament because he affirmed it, and we submit to the new because he authorized it. But let's expand on this a little bit. I have six subpoints that give us just a little bit more when it comes to the doctrine of canonicity. Starting out very basically, let's define what we mean when we're talking about the Word of God. What is the written Word of God, the Bible, the Scripture? The Word of God consists of that which God has revealed through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Key verse on that is 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, where Peter says, but know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, or probably better translated, origination. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Here we have the basic principle of inspiration, and of course, Dr. Chow covered that doctrine last week. A second Subpoint. In the Old Testament, God's word was revealed through his prophets. In the New Testament, God's word was revealed through his son. Key passage on this is Hebrews chapter 1, where the author of Hebrews says this God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, In these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. 
As the author of Hebrews distinguishes there, the Old Testament is God's revelation to his people through the prophets. The New Testament is God's revelation to his people through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Scripture, as we've already defined it, is the written word of God. Jesus is the incarnate word of God. John chapter 1 makes this clear. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Verse 14 tells us the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then verse 18, no one has seen God at any time The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Here we have the Apostle John expressing truth that is seemingly incomprehensible, that the second member of the Trinity became flesh, verse 14, so that he might reveal to us the truth about God. What's significant then is that we see throughout the Gospels the incarnate word, the Lord Jesus Christ, testifying to the written word. Conversely, we see the written word testifying to the incarnate word. But Jesus testifies to the Old Testament in its entirety. He he affirms it in its entirety. Matthew chapter 5, 17 and 18 is where Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And then he says, heaven and earth will not pass away until every jot and tittle, every word and stroke of this law is fulfilled. We see Jesus affirming the Old Testament in a number of ways. For example, he affirms its historical reliability. Matthew 10, 15 is where he affirms Sodom and Gomorrah as historic cities. Chapter 12, verse 40, he affirms Jonah as a historic person. Chapter 19, verses 3 and 5, he affirms Adam as a historic person and creation as that which God describes it in Genesis 1 to 3. And in chapter 24, he affirms Noah and the flood. I love that. Jesus affirms the historicity of the Old Testament. He was a young earth creationist. He's also the creator. (laughs) He affirmed a, a literal global flood. He affirms Sodom and Gomorrah and the destruction of those cities. He affirms Jonah and the fish. It always strikes me as odd that you would have people who claim to be followers of Christ, Christians, who don't actually submit to what Jesus himself taught. But that's probably a different sermon slash lecture. Jesus not only affirmed the historical reliability of the Old Testament, he affirmed its prophetic accuracy. Matthew chapter 26, verse 54, a passage where he is being, it describes the account of his arrest. Peter, in his eagerness, takes out his sword and is ready to fight. Jesus says, put that away. This has to happen this way because the scriptures must be fulfilled. It's just one example of Jesus affirming the the prophetic precision of the Old Testament. And of course, we could talk about the many, many prophecies that Jesus fulfilled precisely and completely. Jesus affirmed the sufficiency of the Old Testament. Luke 16, this is the passage where we have the account of the rich man and Lazarus and the rich man who was an unbeliever ends up in hell and he's talking to Abraham who is of course in heaven and He's saying, Abraham, send somebody back to warn my relatives. And Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets. They have the book. If they don't believe the scriptures, they won't even believe if someone rises from the dead. And Jesus 
in that way affirms that the scriptures was all that was needed to know about life and godliness and to be in right relationship with, with the Lord. He affirms the unity of scripture in passages like Luke 24, verse 27, and Luke 24, verse 44, passages that we'll read in just a moment. He affirms the inerrancy of the Old Testament. Inerrancy means that it is without error because it reflects the character of its author and God cannot lie and therefore there is no untruthfulness in the scriptures. Said conversely, John 17, 17, your word is truth. Jesus affirmed that. He affirmed the infallibility of the Old Testament. Quoting from the Psalms in answer to the Pharisees, he said, the scripture cannot be broken. And he affirmed the authority of the Old Testament. In fact, in his debates with the religious leaders, he often said, it is written. Have you not read? Do you not understand? Remember what he said to Nicodemus, how could you be a teacher in Israel and not know this? In Mark chapter seven, the religious leaders were all upset because the disciples had not conformed to the rabbinic, extra-biblical, ritualistic hand-washing ceremonies. And they were getting all upset about this, and, and Jesus rebuked them. And he said to them, you have elevated the traditions of men above the word of God. And Jesus' point was that the word of God is authoritative over every man-made philosophy, tradition, teaching, or practice. I mentioned the unity of Scripture, Luke 24, 27, and 24. See those verses on the screen. This is where Jesus affirms the divisions of the Hebrew Scriptures as the first century Jews divided them. The law, the five books of Moses, the prophets, and the writings. So you can see here Luke 24, 27, the, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And then a little bit later in that passage, now talking to all of the apostles, he says, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, a reference to that third category of the writings, must be fulfilled. So Jesus affirmed the Old Testament. We'll get a little bit more specific with that in just a few moments, but it's important for us to understand that we submit to the Old Testament scriptures because we submit first and foremost to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. What about the New Testament? Well, in addition to the Old Testament, Jesus also promised to give additional revelation to his church through his authorized representatives, the apostles. And the early church understood this. They understood that that which came from the Old Testament prophets was Scripture, and also that which came from the apostles was Scripture. We see Peter articulate that in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. He says, This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you, in which I am stirring you up, your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets, that's the Old Testament, and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. On the night before his death in the upper room, the upper room discourse, starting in John 13 and running for five chapters in the book of John, we have this account of what transpired in the events leading up to Jesus' arrest and crucifixion. And in the upper room, he tells his apostles that he is going to reveal truth to them through the Holy Spirit. And this promise is twofold. 
The first part of this promise is that through the Holy Spirit, they will remember with precision the things that Jesus taught them when he was with them. And then the second part of this is that he will also, through the Holy Spirit, reveal to them additional revelation, additional truth that will be necessary for them as they lead the church. So look at what he says in John 14. Jesus answered and said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the words which you hear is not mine, but the father who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. This is a promise from Christ to his apostles that the Holy Spirit will enable them to remember perfectly the things that they experienced and learned when Christ was in their midst during his earthly ministry. Later in chapter 16, the Lord makes a similar promise, but now expanding beyond the things that he taught them during his earthly tenure. He says, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak of his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. So two promises given specifically to the apostles in the upper room, the first promise that through the Holy Spirit you will remember the things that I taught you, the second promise that through the Holy Spirit additional revelation will be given to you, including revelation about things that are yet to come. Where do we see these promises fulfilled? We see the first promise fulfilled in the writing of the four Gospels. We see the second promise fulfilled in the writing of the epistles, including the book of Revelation, which details that which is yet to come. In light of these promises, the apostles being specifically commissioned by Christ, authorized by him to give this revelation to the church through the Holy Spirit, the apostles recognized that their inspired writings were part of the biblical canon and on par with the books of the Old Testament. For example, in 1 Corinthians 14, the apostle Paul says, anyone who is spiritually minded will recognize that this comes from the Lord. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, we'll read in a moment, chapter 4, verse 15, he says, this instruction comes from the Lord. 2 Peter 3, 2, a passage we already read, Peter puts the teaching of the apostles on par with that of the prophets. 1 John chapter 4 talks about the fact that those who receive the teaching of the apostle John are those who walk in the truth and know God. Just two examples, 1 Thessalonians 2.13, here Paul says to the Thessalonians, for this reason we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. And then 2 Peter 3, at the end of Peter's second epistle, he warns about false teachers, but in the process of warning about false teachers, he notes the fact that Paul's writings ought to be considered on par with the rest of the scriptures. He writes, regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in, the, in them of these things, 
in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. Peter considered the writings of Paul to be scripture, and rightly so, because Paul was an apostle. He had been commissioned and authorized by Christ. So, just a brief recap on this basic rule of canonicity. Four quick summary points. Number one, Jesus Christ affirmed the Old Testament as Scripture, and as his followers, we must do the same. Secondly, the Lord also established the principle of apostolic authority when he promised to give further revelation through the Holy Spirit to the church. We submit to the prophets and we submit to the apostles because both are commissioned by God as his spokesman. Third, apostolic authorship or authorization is therefore the primary principle for affirming the books of the New Testament canon. The church submits to the teaching of Christ's authorized representatives, and we'll get into a little more detail on that point. And then fourth, because additional revelation was only promised to the apostles, the canon closed when the apostolic age ended. It's important to understand that since the foundation of the church, what Ephesians 2.20 calls the foundation of the church, since that period has ended, there are no longer apostles of Jesus Christ in the church age. The last surviving apostle was the apostle John. He died around the year 100, and with his death, the canon was closed. The New Testament requires three qualifications for anyone who would claim to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. They have to be personally appointed by the Lord Jesus. They have to be able to demonstrate miraculous signs, what Paul calls the signs of an apostle, and they have to be a physical eyewitness of the risen Christ. That last one is especially important because in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 8, Paul says he was the last of all to see the risen Christ. Paul was the last apostle appointed. There have been no apostles appointed after Paul. With the death of the apostle John, the canon of the New Testament was closed. So let's take this principle then and let's go book by book through our 27 books of the New Testament. We begin with the history books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. Well, Matthew and John were both apostles, therefore they meet the primary principle here that Christ's authorized representatives are the ones through whom we receive his revealed truth. Mark wrote under the apostolic authority of Peter. Mark, of course, was a disciple of Peter. Peter calls Mark his son in the faith. And we know from very early Christian tradition, actually from a church father named Papias of Hierapolis, who was a contemporary of the apostles, that Mark wrote the memoirs of Peter. The gospel of Mark really is the gospel of Peter as written by Mark. Luke wrote both his gospel and the book of Acts under the apostolic authority of the apostle Paul. Luke, of course, was Paul's traveling companion. Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 18, refers to a portion of Luke and calls it Scripture. We also know that Luke, according to Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, interviewed numerous eyewitnesses in his writing of the gospel. So it comes with eyewitness testimony, and it comes under the authorization of Paul. So all five of these books meet our criteria. They were either penned by an apostle or under apostolic authority. The Pauline epistles, 13 in total, all written by the apostle Paul, they clearly meet our criteria. The order in your New Testament is not chronological. We believe Galatians was written first, followed by 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, then 1st and 2nd Corinthians, then Romans, then the prison epistles, 
of Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, and Philemon, and then the pastoral epistles of 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus, with 2nd Timothy being the last. Then we have the general epistles, Hebrews, James, 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Jude. The New Testament calls James an apostle in Galatians 2, verse 9. Peter, of course, was an apostle. John is an apostle. Jude writes under the apostolic authority of his brother James, which is why I believe he begins his epistle saying, Jude, the brother of James. And then we have the book of Revelation written by the apostle John. Now you're all saying, wait a second, you skipped Hebrews. Uh, No, I saved it for the last. I didn't skip it. What about the book of Hebrews? Who wrote Hebrews? Well, the Holy Spirit wrote Hebrews, so we can all just rest easy. The reality is that the book of Hebrews was, and this is going to sound trite, but I'll explain it in a minute, was either written by Paul or not Paul. Those are the two options. And in the world of scholarship, that really is the debate. But it was clearly written by someone closely associated with Paul. And its recognition by the church was this is a letter that was associated with the ministry of Paul, and therefore it comes with Paul's apostolic authority. The reason we know it was so closely associated with Paul is not only because of the early external witness of the church fathers, but also because at the end of Hebrews, it mentions the fact that Timothy has recently been released from prison, and only someone closely associated with Paul and his group of ministers would have had that kind of intimate knowledge about Timothy. Now, the theology of Hebrews is definitely Pauline. The Greek doesn't really fit with the rest of Paul's letters, but Hebrews seems like it could have been a sermon that was preached, a homily, and as such, it could have therefore had a different style of Greek. The Greek is more similar to Luke's Greek, which is why, if you want my theory, I think it was a sermon that Paul preached that Luke wrote down. But at the end of the day, I'm content with the fact that the Holy Spirit wrote the book of Hebrews. Wherever you land on the Paul or not Paul side of that, you can have confidence that the book of Hebrews is in the canon because it comes under the umbrella of Paul's apostolic authority. On that, there really is no debate. Let's talk a little bit about the New Testament canon in terms of its recognition in church history. The church, and this is important, did not create or determine the canon of Scripture. The church did not create the Bible, and it did not determine what's in the Bible. The church recognized and submitted to that which was either prophetic in terms of the Old Testament or apostolic in terms of the New Testament. I found one theologian who said it this way, the church no more created the canon than Sir Isaac Newton created gravity. I like that. Newton didn't create gravity. He didn't determine gravity. He recognized it, and every time he jumped off of anything high, he submitted to it. And the same thing is true with the canon of Scripture. The church recognized the canon, and the church submits to the canon. Now, that universal recognition did take some time. We're in an era prior to the electronic age. There's no email. There's no Facebook or Instagram. There's no telecommunications network Things travel by letter, and letters take time to circulate throughout the ancient Near Eastern world. Now, this is intended to show you the place where these letters either were sent or where they were written, just to give you kind of an idea of how it would have taken time for these things to circulate. So, for example, the book of Romans was sent to the church in Rome. The book of Acts was written from Rome. So you have examples of how it would have taken time for these letters to get from Rome to other parts 
of the Roman Empire or even to Christians who lived outside the Roman Empire. It's important to state that in all of this, God providentially worked to preserve his word throughout church history. And this is where we trust the providence, the providential preservation of God, ensuring through the faithfulness of his people, ensuring that those books that he desired to be in the canon of Scripture were in the canon of Scripture. The way in which this worked was through the corporate internal testimony of the Holy Spirit. The internal testimony of the Holy Spirit, Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians, excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, where he talks about the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. We also have Jesus in John 10, verse 27, talking about the fact that my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. So there is the internal working of the Holy Spirit through the collective body of believers as they recognize and hear the voice of Christ through the writings of his apostolic representatives. The principle, though, the principle always, from the very beginning, we saw this already in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, the principle always was if it comes from an Old Testament prophet or if it comes from one of Jesus' apostles, an apostle of Jesus Christ, then it is the word of God. The church always submitted to that principle. Justin Martyr, he wrote... Uh, really the earliest description we have of a church service outside of the New Testament. This was, where, this was written around the year 150, so just about 50 years after the death of the apostle John. And Justin describes the early church this way. He says, on the day called Sunday, there is a gathering together in the same place of all who live in a given city or rural district. The memoirs of the apostles, that's the New Testament, or the writings of the prophets, that's the Old Testament, are read as long as time permits. Then when the reader ceases, the president, the one presiding on the meeting, the pastor, in a discourse admonishes and urges the imitation of these good things, and then we all rise together and send up prayers. What did the early church do every Sunday from the very beginning? They gathered together on Sundays and they read the scriptures. And what were the scriptures? The scriptures were that which come from the prophets, Old Testament, and that which comes from the apostles, New Testament. And then they listened to a pastor get up and preach. That's encouraging, because that's what the church still does today. Irenaeus lived a little bit after Justin Martyr, died about 100 years after the apostle John died. He says, we have learned from we have learned from none others the plan of our salvation than from those through whom the gospel came down to us. That's a reference to the apostles, which they did at one time proclaim in public and at a later period by the will of God handed down to us in the scriptures to be the ground and pillar of our faith. So from the very beginning, the church understood that that which comes from the apostles is the foundation it is the scripture, it is the ground and pillar of the faith. And you can see in the earliest church fathers, you can see them appealing to the scriptures. No church father ever claimed to be an apostle. In fact, for 1900 years, no one in church history claimed to be an apostle. It took the modern charismatic movement for people to start claiming that. They knew they weren't apostles. They cited the apostles because they knew the apostles were authoritative. And so you have Clement of Rome citing eight New Testament books, Ignatius, seven New Testament books, Polycarp, 14, Irenaeus, 21, Hippolytus, 22. And as false teaching arises, they realize we need to start making lists because the false teachers were making lists. Around the year 170, the earliest list that we have is a list that includes 23 New Testament books. But it's hard to make lists when the government's trying to kill you all the time and you're meeting in catacombs and you can never get together and 
ever formalize anything. It's not until the fourth century when peace comes to Christians in the Roman Empire that they're finally able to formalize a list. But they didn't create the canon. They recognized the canon. And by the time we get to the mid-300s, that the formal process of that recognition is complete. Now, here's my attempt at a timeline, but it's intended to give you kind of a visual perspective on these books were written. From the moment they were written, they were part of the canon because the moment that the word of God is written, it is authoritative, it is inspired, it is the word of God. Over time, these letters are circulating And finally, when persecution subsides, the church is able to gather together at councils and formalize what they had all believed all along. That which comes from the prophets is scripture. That which comes from the apostles is scripture. All right, very quickly, are there other books outside of the New Testament that are missing? For the sake of time, I'm going to limit this just to two categories, Gnostic writings and the writings of the early church fathers. With regard to Gnostic writings, no, the Gnostic writings should not be part of your New Testament, despite what you see every Easter on the History Channel or the Discovery Channel. The Gnostic writings do not belong in your New Testament. The earliest Gnostic gospel was written roughly a century after the biblical gospels, and it's not really a gospel at all. The gospel of Thomas is just a collection of sayings that are attributed to Jesus. The rest of the Gnostic gospels come from the third and fourth centuries, long, long after the events they purportedly describe. They're full of heresy. They're dangerous. They are not part of the canon. What about the early church fathers? Well, the early church fathers wrote some good things. Works like Clement's first epistle to the Corinthians, Polycarp's letter to the Philippians. These are good books, but they weren't written by an apostle and they weren't written under apostolic authority. And so they're not part of the canon, even though early Christians read them and were edified by them. In the same way that John Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress, and Pilgrim's Progress is great. I love Pilgrim's Progress, but it doesn't belong in the canon because John Bunyan wasn't an apostle and he didn't write under apostolic authority. So I can appreciate and be edified by Pilgrim's Progress, but it's not scripture. Same thing was true with the early church fathers. Our final question has to do with the Apocrypha. What about the Apocrypha? Uh, The Jewish canon, according to the Talmud, which is close to what the Jewish scriptures would be today, organizes its canon into 24 books. Those 24 books correspond to the 39 books that are in your Old Testament. You take the minor prophets and group them all into one book. You take the first and second Kings, Chronicles, Samuel, you combine them all into one book, and you quickly get from 39 down to 24 The Jews of Jesus' day seem to have actually had a 22-book canon by combining Ruth with Judges and Lamentations with Jeremiah. So the, the Jewish canon of the first century was 22 books or 22 scrolls, because the Codex hadn't really been invented yet. But don't worry, those 22 correspond to the 39 that are in your Old Testament. That'll be significant here in just a moment. The Apocrypha are books that were written after Malachi and before Matthew. You can see the the estimated date of composition. And these are books that are included in the Roman Catholic canon, but are excluded from the Protestant canon. Now, why would we exclude the apocryphal books? Well, the answer is because the Jews of Jesus' day did not consider the apocryphal books to be part of their scriptures. And Jesus affirmed the canon of first century Judaism as being a complete Old Testament canon. And so, if Jesus didn't affirm the apocrypha as scripture, we don't affirm the apocrypha as scripture. And neither does the rest of the New Testament. For the sake of time, I'll skip the quote here from Josephus. Josephus was a first century Jewish historian. 
He simply affirms and confirms that the Jews of his day held to a 22-book canon. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, and they were very proud of the fact that the number of scrolls in their canon was consistent with the number of letters in the Hebrew alphabet. That same thing was believed by many early church fathers, and Jesus himself confirms that the canon of the Old Testament does not include the apocryphal books. That, that bottom line there about Matthew 23 and Luke 11 is really fascinating because Jesus said that the Jews would be held accountable for the blood of the prophets from Abel to Zechariah. Abel's the first prophet in the book of Genesis killed. Zechariah is the last prophet killed in the book of Second Chronicles. What Jesus is implying is that the canon goes from Genesis to Second Chronicles, which in the first century Jewish ordering of the canon started with Genesis and ended with Second Chronicles. It did not include the Apocrypha. In addition to that, you have theological errors in the Apocrypha, historical errors in the Apocrypha. The early church fathers, many of them affirm that the Old Testament canon is just the 22-book Hebrew canon. They did not view the apocryphal books as part of the canon of Scripture, Origin, and Cyril of Jerusalem are two examples. Jerome, I'll mention this because I think it's significant, he's the one who actually translated the Latin Vulgate, which is sort of the official uh, translation of the Roman Catholic Church. Jerome actually puts in the preface to the Apocrypha hey, I'm gonna translate these because they're helpful books, but everybody should know these aren't scripture. It's really interesting. He says this, as then the church reads Judith, Tobit, and the books of Maccabees, but does not admit them among the canonical scriptures, so let it read these two volumes, the Wisdom of Solomon and Ecclesiasticus, for the edification of the people, but not to give authority to the doctrines of the church." And just to be clear, Ecclesiasticus is not the same as Ecclesiastes. All right. Let's bring it all home. To go back to our original question, why these 66 books? The answer rests in the authority of Jesus Christ. It begins and ends with him. To submit to the Lord Jesus is to submit to his word. Why do we reject the Apocrypha? Because the Lord didn't affirm the Apocrypha as scripture. He affirmed the 22-book canon of the Hebrew scriptures, which corresponds to our 39-book Old Testament. And Jesus authorized his apostles. And when we submit to their writings and their teachings, we are submitting not to them, but to him. brings us back to the verse we started with this evening, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. And I want to end by, by challenging you. It's one thing to talk about the canon of Scripture. It's another thing to realize that Scripture is complete, yes, but the complete Scripture is given by God to make you complete. In fact, that's what Paul says here, that the man of God might be complete. I read one pastor who used the illustration of a telescope. And he said, learning about the Bible sometimes can be like looking at a telescope. And we can admire all of the pieces and parts as they fit together. And, and tonight, we've seen that the telescope came complete in the box. When you put together that telescope, all of the pieces are there. Nothing is missing. All of the right components are there. The lenses, everything you need. It's one thing to look at the telescope and admire the craftsmanship and the beauty and the wonder of the telescope. It's another thing to look through the telescope at the one the telescope is designed to reveal. And so my challenge as we wrap up our discussion about canonicity this evening is 
Don't just be amazed about the completion of the word of God. That is amazing. But hide its truth in your heart so that you are not just informed, but transformed. One final slide. James chapter one. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in all that he does. So don't just be amazed at the word of God, but rather be amazed at the God of the word, the one that his revealed truth is intended to display. Look to Christ and see him here and rejoice as the Holy Spirit sanctifies you and transforms you into his image. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the truth you have given us in your word. Without your revealed truth, we would have no hope. We would be helpless, destitute, destined for an eternity of judgment and wrath. And yet in this book, comprised of 66 smaller books, you have revealed to us the way of life, the person of life, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And through him, we can come to you. And so we pray these things this evening in his name, amen.